Welcome back to That's Ancient History and the first of our Ask a Classicist episodes. So this is a bit of a dry run. Hopefully it goes well and we can continue with these in the future. But my first Ask a Classicist guest who is going to ask me an assortment of random questions that they have come up with on the topic of antiquity and mythology and classics to test my knowledge <laughs> and perhaps uh, raise some interesting discussions is my friend and author Jen Campbell. Hello. <laughs> Jen is many, many things. She is a booktuber, she is a poet, she is a non-fiction and fiction author as well as having done many other exciting things in the literary world. Um, you can check her out on all of her social media at Jen V Campbell, nice and simple and easy to remember. And um, I'm really intrigued to see what you're going to ask me today. I'm really intrigued too. No, I know what I'm going to ask you to <laughs> Just let's just see what happens, right? Well, firstly, we're having breakfast right now, which is very nice. Jean's mm-hmm. put on some strawberries and some chocolate brioche and some iced coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that the Greeks didn't have this for breakfast. What did they have for breakfast too? Oh, well, they, yeah, they did not have chocolate brioche no. and uh, strawberries. Actually, funnily enough, and I wish I could remember more from it, but I did a module in second year of university during my classical studies degree about food mm. Antiquity, and they didn't have a lot of sweet things. One of their main sweet things was dates. They were a big fan of dates. That was like their sugary treat. Yeah. So that's probably what they'd be having right now. Um, I, what did they have for breakfast? That's a really interesting question. All of my random food facts are things like they didn't use cutlery. They used bread as a plate, mm. and they like like hollowed it out. Yeah, well, it was just yeah. sort of like the, it was sort of like a kind of pita bread type thing. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. really flat, and they mm. used that as their plate, and they used their hands to eat. And um, my other favorite thing, not about the Greeks, but the Romans, was that they they eat very early. So they would eat their breakfast very early in the morning. They'd have a light early lunch, and then they'd start having their dinner around like four or something like that, and it would last for like four hours. It would just be like a really long thing. I suppose it's when it gets really hot. You're in Italy. You go home. You set up your dinner with everybody, you lie sideways on your uh, mm. lounging chairs and you eat just slowly and lots throughout the throughout the night and sort of have conversations. Which Not I to sound like a meme, but I want to go to that. <laughs> I know, right? It sounds really nice, isn't it? I mean, it's probably a little bit like more fun if you're a man. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Most of antiquity that was. True. Mind you, we do have long picnics. I mean, we can do that too. Yeah. We have board games as well, so maybe ours are better. Yeah, and maybe. we have chocolate brioche. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Um... A lot of people assume that I know lots about myths because my pet subject is fairy tales, but actually they are so different. And a lot of fairy tales have been inspired by myth because you can you can trace everything back to antiquity, right? Um, but it's still the stories people tell themselves, isn't it? Yeah, Regardless yeah. of the culture. Yeah, but I suppose with fairy tales, normally you don't know the name of um, the protagonist. It's normally like a girl mm. or whatever. So yeah. maybe I just don't like details so much. So I just like <laughs> the generic I like ones. vague characters <laughs> that I can just imprint my own ideas onto. Well, actually, that's true. Because a lot of authors like that because they like the, you know, stock story that they can yeah. then, um, they, they can then embellish. Yeah. Um, so my knowledge of myths is very, very limited and I would like to learn more. Um, a lot of what I know is influenced by things that are wildly inaccurate, like Disney's Hercules. But it you gets you out. I have faith in these kind of pop culture things because mm. they get people interested and they may also teach you inaccuracies, but they do teach you some correct things as well. Yeah. Hercules is the son of Zeus. That's not insane. He did marry someone called Megara. These things, you know, little tidbits. Well, it's really fun to watch Hercules with Jean because she gets very animated about it. If you ever get the chance <laughs> to watch it with her, I highly recommend it. 
Um, I was wondering if you could tell us some things about Disney's Hercules, like a few things that are wildly inaccurate, mm. and then a few things that you're surprised that are actually correct and that okay. they got right. Yeah, okay, so I've actually been thinking about Disney's Hercules a lot recently, because I gave a talk on Greek mythology to a group of 7 to 11 year old children, and I was trying to think of references that would be good. And are we still cool now? Oh yeah, I was like, do they still watch Disney's Hercules? Do they still read Harry Potter? <laughs> it turns out all of these things are still cool, I'm down with the kids, yes. it all went well. But obviously I was sort of looking at Disney's Hercules trying to find images that were relevant. Now, there are a lot of things that, just as somebody who knows a lot about the topic, you can't help but sit there with friends and go, that's not right, that's not right. Um, Hera was not pink. That's one of my favourite <laughs> ones. Why is Hera pink in it? I uh, don't know, but we'll just... that's a, she's a girl. Too. Too. It's an artistic decision, we'll let that slide. Yeah. But one of my things with Disney's Hercules that I never quite understood was the fact that in mythology, Hera is not Hercules' mum. Mm. Hercules is the illegitimate child of Zeus and a mortal woman that Zeus falls in love with, which makes... Hercules the half god that he is mm. he's not full god whereas in the Disney film he's given a potion that drains his godly powers and I get that sort of sanitization of stories wanting it to be like a happy couple that are married and they had this legitimate baby but Disney loves an evil stepmom so in the myths Hera is really the original evil stepmom because she hates Hercules as the illegitimate son of her husband and is constantly ruining his life and I don't understand what was wrong with the evil stepmom narrative for the Disney film but instead they decided to go with the antagonist being Hades which isn't particularly accurate there isn't this um animosity really between Zeus and Hades and the other characters to the extent that there is in the Disney film where Hades is the bad guy and Hercules is a good guy that's that's not particularly accurate. But Hades is a bad guy in general, isn't he? I mean, like he does some pretty crap. Yeah, things. but they all do. He's no yeah. better. Like he, Hades does some awful things. Zeus does some awful things. Hera does some awful things. Hera turns Hercules mad so that he kills his own wife and children. I mean, <laughs> like they're they all do bad things. So I like, yeah. I mean, you could easily turn any of them into villains. Yeah. So it was just an I interesting that decision. Is the simplification that I've got from other because that's what happens. I mean, like with Persephone. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, he yeah. does kidnap women and like he's not. There is nobody in Greek mythology I would suggest you model your life after. Yeah. I wonder if they had decided to do that because they'd already cast. Who's it? Is it John? Uh, what's his name? John. Waters. I forget, but he isn't. He does He's an amazing. amazing voice. So I wonder if they had picked him to play Hades, and then they kind of, you know, they build um, yeah. some of their films around that. So, for instance, they knew that when Robin Williams was playing the genie, that they just gave him free reign and yeah. said, "Okay, you need to get from this point to this point, but you can say whatever you like." Yeah, I mean, Hades makes a good film. Yeah, exactly. in the films, he he really does. But just if we're going on what is accurate, and not accurate, it's not accurate. Um, okay, what what else is not accurate? What? Well, actually, in my recent <laughs> foray into looking into Disney's Hercules once again, I noticed that quite a lot of the short, really short moments in which Hercules is sort of becoming more of a hero and defeating different creatures are actually from mythology. So they're little references to real tasks that Hercules completed. Mm. So the, one myth is that Hercules had to complete these 12 labours. And inc included in these labours were things like the Hydra, which was a beast where every time you cut off one of its heads, more heads grew in its place. And that's obviously one of the quite famous scenes from Disney's Hercules. There's also a really short reference to the Aramanthian boar, which was another animal he had to defeat, as well as the Nemean lion, which you just see really short snippets of him. 
defeating. Oh, then you mean like that scar, right? They have. Oh yes, it's so yeah. yeah, In the Disney film, the yeah, he's having his portrait done, and he's wearing um, the The height of the Nemean lion, which is scar. Mm. Yeah, it's the same image as scar from the Lion King. All that Disney intertwining. (laughs) Yeah, well, in mythology, the Nemean lion used to turn into a woman and pretend to be in distress, so that warriors would come to save her, and then she would turn back into a lion and eat them. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Subterfuge. Yeah. Um, so there like are things in there. They clearly had a vague idea, well not a vague idea, but they'd done their research. They knew mm. stuff about Hercules and they made their own story, but they also liked to include these little references, which you kind of start to notice if you're familiar with the myths. Yeah. Well, something that I really want to know more about is constellation myth. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Which um, I know is quite big. Mm. in like ancient times stargazing etc i read that um in irish folklore it said that the ancients were worried that if it was a cloudy sky people wouldn't be able to navigate their way home so they painted the constellations on their cheeks and that's why everyone has freckles and i oh, think that's, so that's lovely that so oh nice. that is so good i like that what constellation myths are your favorite Okay, yeah. Um, well, if you're interested in ancient constellation myths, and there is a book uh, called Constellation Myths, which is published by Oxford World Classics, and it includes writers like Eratosthenes and Hyginus, um, and their records of the of the constellation myths and how the kind of stars came to be in the sky. Um, what's a good constellation myth? Okay, so so one of the star signs is Gemini, and is quite often traced back to the twins Castor and Pollux, who were the brothers of Helen of Troy, who's pretty famous, so there's <laughs> t- ties it all back together for you. Um, and after they died, they became uh, constellations in the sky as Castor and Pollux. And what I quite liked is that in some versions of the Helen of Troy myth is that eventually, she has a long, long story beyond just what happens in Troy, but at the end of the story, some of the versions say that she then passed away and went up to become a constellation with her brothers, which I just think, I don't know, it gives a nice little, I mean, it's sad, but it gives a bit of happiness to the end of what is quite a tragic series of events. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. Mm. I know that, um, as we said before, a lot of myths have gone on to influence well everything, but um, a lot of fairy tales too. So we've got the myth of the Minotaur in his labyrinth, Mm -hmm. um, which went on to influence things like Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. Then we've got Procne and Philomela, um, which went on to influence things like Titus Andronicus. Lots of, lots of um, people in pies, right? Mm. And, uh, uh, it, yeah, Shakespeare decided then he would go elsewhere and not do that so much anymore. Not a great reception. <laughs> His first ever play. Oh, well. Um, and then early versions of Sleeping Beauty, which did have names. Fairy tales did used to have names. I have did to learn they? one. Yeah. Okay. So the oldest um, version of uh, Sleeping Beauty that we have is Princess Celadine. And in that, um, uh, she is, well, she's essentially raped uh-huh. um, when she's asleep. Um, and then she wakes up having given birth to twins. Um, oh no, to a baby, sorry, a baby this time. And then later than that, we also have The Moon, The Sun and Talia, which was written by... Giambattista uh, Basile, who is an Italian folklorist, and that again has the princess who is raped. She gives birth to twins this mm-hmm. time, um, and then she's kept as like a secret mistress of this prince who has oh. slept with her. A commentary on royalty having lots of you know affairs and yeah. illegitimate children, but then his wife finds out and she wants to bake the children into pies and make him eat 
them. That doesn't happen. Um, they, they escape. But, Am I um, correct in saying you have a video on your channel all about sleeping beauty? Yes, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Because I thought I'd heard this before. So yeah, there are lots, <laughs> there are lots of pies and, and violence. What other myths can you think of that have influenced fairy tales in that way? I'm interested by this concept of the myth of the Minotaur and um, Beauty and the Beast. Is this mm. the idea of sort of sacrificing women to this this beast to keep it happy? And this beast who is, because um, the Minotaur is also part man. Yes. And, and the part beast. And being in this secret place and this maze that you have to get out of. I mean, it is obviously like a very loose yeah, yeah. inspiration for it. Um, and again, if anyone is interested, I have a video on the history of... Um, Beauty and the Beast on my channel and it was more also inspired by um, people changing so it has influence of Cupid and Psyche as well which also then feeds into Shakespeare and we've got Bottom and Midsummer Night's yeah. Dream um, turning into a donkey um, and fairies you know having a laugh and a lot of the characters in um, Midsummer's Night's Dream uh, I believe there is a Theseus mm. um, who is actually a character from the myth of the Minotaur there you go. Uh, because Theseus is the Athenian hero that comes to slay the Minotaur and save the Athenian citizens that are being sacrificed to the Minotaur from it. Um, and that's when you get the, the story of like the, the ball of wool leading him out of the labyrinth and he saves the princess Ariadne, who's been sacrificed by her parents, to this bull, which is actually her half-brother because mm. her mother gave birth to it after having sex with a bull. And uh, he saves Ariadne. <laughs> then they're like, we're in love. Let's head off on a John over the sea. Halfway on the journey, changes his mind, dumps her on an island. Nice. Um, and then a few years later, marries her sister. Men. I know. <laughs> but she does end up marrying Dionysus, god of wine and parties. So... There's a bit of like there's a bit of a lining there. <laughs> she she's at least not completely by herself on the island for the rest of time. But yeah, beauty, <laughs> beauty is, is about sacrifice because yeah. um, she goes in place of her father. Yeah. Who um is the person who was initially captured by the beast because he picked a rose mm -hmm. in his garden. Very naughty. Penance death, yeah. Um don't pick roses. <laughs> uh, so she says she will stay there in his uh, place and he had been turned into a beast by a fairy uh, who had looked after him until he was sixteen. Um because his mother uh, after his father died went to war on his father's behalf so he was looked after by this fairy and when he turned 16 the fairy declared love for him and said do you want to marry me and he was like no you're like my stepmom this is weird so she turned him into a beast and said oh. you know someone has to love you in this form um anyway this story is much it's, it's, it was a novel at the first yeah. time that it was it was written it was a novel so it's very long and strange and there are no singing cutlery which is very sad <laughs> um, and seeing that that theme of sort of don't pick flowers a lot of bad things happen when characters are picking flowers in greek myths as well mm. i think there's like a real tie between the picking of flowers and the idea of of um, women's sexuality and the, the plucking idea um, and in some versions of the myth where Persephone is kidnapped by Hades and taken down to the underworld to be his wife she's out picking flowers when he spots her do you think that's like some kind of ideal feminine thing to be doing there's definitely in later non-mythological like romance stories written by the ancient Greeks lots of themes of picking flowers they definitely use it as sort of like a metaphor for things or like a, a loss of innocence and also maybe mm. you're distracted yeah you're not looking around you so yeah. much you've wandered off into the woods like little red riding hood yeah so exactly paying attention. And in, by yourself exactly how dare you and then, <laughs> there's lots of air quotes going on that you can't see right <laughs> but um uh, also in the myth of the what's well, the myth in the fairy tale of the wild swans or the 
Six Swan Brothers. It has mm. also different titles. She has to sew a, um, a tunic out of flowers mm. to save her brothers. So I think it appears uh, both ways too. Which yeah. is quite and weaving is something, again, in ancient myth that women use to save the day. Spinning like, wheel. Exactly. 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 <laughs> weaving, spinning, that craft is so heavily associated with yeah. women in like traditional tales. So both in the story of Procne and Philomela, after Philomela has been sexually assaulted by her sister Procne's husband, he cuts out her tongue so she can't tell anybody what has happened. And I actually recorded a whole podcast episode about this myth, so you can listen to that. And in order to reveal to her sister what her sister's husband has done to her, she weaves a tapestry mm. of the events so that um, she can she can share what has happened to her. And also in um, the tale of Odysseus um, and in the Odyssey by Homer, Penelope is being wooed by all of these suitors who think her husband is dead and want to marry her so they can take over his kingdom. And in order to buy herself time whilst Odysseus is away because she's convinced he's still alive, she promises once she has weaved a shroud, she will then pick a husband. So every day she weaves the shroud, but at night she unweaves her progress so that it never gets completed. Mm. So there's a lot of themes of that, yeah. I like that. And also then Shakespeare took that one step further with Titus Andronicus mm. and had her hands cut off too so that she couldn't do something Exactly, like it's that. such a clear reference to that myth in which this yeah. is how she tells people. But then in Titus Andronicus, she points to a copy of Ovid's Metamorphosis where the myth is to tell them. Yeah, it's exactly. great. It's so good. So <laughs> Except good. awful and violent. Yeah, no, yeah. No, <laughs> we do not endorse. <laughs> um... And the weaving, it makes sense because a lot of tales, I don't know with regard to myth, but with fairy tales, a lot of them would be shared when people were collectively doing things. So mm. maybe sitting around, doing the laundry, yeah. doing weaving, yeah. trying to pass the time. Um, yeah, they're oral tales, aren't exactly. they? It's the same with myths. They were shared orally. Yeah. I'm looking at the time and I realise that we probably should wrap up. Sorry, I sound like I'm taking over your podcast. <laughs> I realise it's yours. Um, but I would like to um, finish on small details and the little things that then become iconic images. So for instance, in the uh, tale of Cinderella, it used to be not a glass slipper that she had, but a fur slipper. Um, and this was changed, and we're not sure if that's through mistranslation or deliberately because someone decided fur slippers weren't that great. <laughs> they were changed to golden slippers and then glass slippers. Um, and similarly, in Pandora, the tale of Pandora, I know that, well, the myth of Pandora, I know that it, it was originally a jar that she opened. Yes. And then it was changed to a box. So I wonder if we could talk about that. Yes. So okay. this is, yeah, I love I love the myth of Pandora, as depressing as it is. Um, but the, we all think of Pandora's box. This this box that Pandora opens and releases all the evils of the world out of. But in the original ancient Greek, the word is pithoi. Um, and pithoi is actually a jar. A pithoi is, is a type of jar. So originally the myth was that Pandora opened a jar, but in other contexts the same word can be used and some have interpreted it to mean womb. So this is actually a subtle reference to all of the evils of the world coming from Pandora, who is the first woman's womb. <laughs> you know, in most cultures around the world there is um, some kind of myth or fairy tale about women causing death we are to blame for everything yes. uh, maybe because um women in air quotes give life so maybe that power should 
mean that you could take life to yeah. you. I don't know. But they're in every, well, not every, most cultures around yeah. the world, this is a thing. It's really interesting. Yeah. I find it fascinating. Well, you probably know already, but I usually ask my guests to recommend me a book at the end of the podcast. And I know you're obviously not a classicist, but we've talked a little about fairy tales today. So perhaps you could recommend our listeners a book if they're interested in learning more about fairy tales. Oh, I tell you what, I'm not going to recommend you a specific book, but I'll recommend you a specific author, and they've written lots of books, okay. and then people can go and research him and find out. I think I can guess who it is. It's, it's Jack Zipes. Yeah. I always <laughs> recommend him. He's the king. Okay. Um, he is fantastic, um, and he has done lots of different translations and studies into um, the history of fairy tales. Um, his most, well, one of his most recent books is a translation of the original Brothers Grimm fairy tales, which are from 1812 and 1815. Wilhelm um, uh, and Jacob were great revisionists, or rather, Wilhelm was more than Jacob, and he revised the texts, I think, eight or nine times over the course of several decades. And it was the later versions that were then translated, and they were much more sanitized, they became very Christian, um, mm. and the previous ones were much more gory. So, this is the first time they've been translated into English, which is why it's really interesting that Disney have treated fairy tales mm. the way that they do. It's because we focus more on the the later translations yeah. of those tales. And also, it's hilarious if you go to the continent, if you go to Europe and you're talking to German people, Dutch people about the fairy tales that they read when they were younger. And I can say, you know, when I was older, I found out all of these things. And they're just like, yeah, we always knew that. <laughs> we always knew that. So uh, English tales, a little bit made a little bit quaint yeah. oh dear <laughs> okay well thank you thank you so much for, for joining me this lovely. has been fun just having a bit of a chat i yeah. like this um do check jen out on all of her social media and youtube accounts as well as read some of her fantastic books i can thoroughly recommend them and check the podcast out on that's ancient history at twitter looking forward to chatting with you next time thanks for having me <laughs> thanks for joining me <laughs>